And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone, there are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is a hundred percent for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the hosts attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Sayadian. And today we are back with another episode on the topic of federal vision. And to help us to tackle this topic, we have welcomed back a former guest, and his name is Patrick Hines. Welcome back, Pat. It's great to be with you again. Glad to, to see you guys again. Great to have you, man. Yes, welcome back, yeah. Patrick. You're kind of, uh, I would say, a fan favorite, man. <laughs> really? Unfortunately, the, the last topic we had to tackle was not a spectacular one or, a, or an exciting one to cover, but unfortunately, we had to do so as well. And that was the topic of John Piper and his view of two, uh, uh, I would say, uh, what is it called? A two-stage view of final, two sta- final salvation. Yeah, final salvation. Two-stage view of of justification and actually uh the view that we're going to deal with today is not too far from that view as well yeah yeah it's very similar to it which i think that's why probably why they're um they get along real well and, and do stuff together so mm, yep yeah so anyway we're going to tackle the topic of federal vision today the federal vision and specifically the claims of doug wilson and his views that he holds today, supposedly, and the views that he held back then when the federal vision became a controversy. So we've asked Patrick to come in and help us with this topic today. And then we're gonna get started um, with, I think a clip, Onig, of Doug Wilson and James White on a video called the Sweater Vest Dialogues, correct? Yes, correct. Okay, so we're gonna see what Doug Wilson claims to believe as of today. To be fair, we want to represent everybody clearly, and then we'll give a response that's needed to counteract that claim. Why don't you give us that clip on it? Okay. But anyway, so now even back, even back in the day, because um, our debate was in 2004, so that was, you know, not, you know, it's sort of in the same, obviously the same time period. Um, I differentiated between yourself and others from Auburn Avenue and from the presentations we made, you right. had to, to be able to accurately understand what somebody was saying. Right. So these guys, um, I, I would say that a lot of the guys on the uh, federal vision oatmeal stout end of things are 
are my friends. I've, I've got a good relationship with them, but I re would regard them as sometimes more Lutheran or, or more Anglican or um, uh, more friendly to uh, uh, sacramental efficacy in itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't believe that they hold to the ex opere operato view of the Roman Catholic Church, but I think that there are Protestants who are not as skittish about that kind of thing as I uh, am, as I was, and as I am. So right. I'm, I'm an evangelical. In my book from that era, Reformed is Not Enough, I begin the book with three chapters in a row, uh, my Calvinistic bona fides, my Reformed bona fides, and my evangelical bona fides, to make it clear that I believe in the absolute necessity of the new birth, to make it clear that I believe in justification by faith alone plus nothing. Um, and so I've held to those views um, uh, throughout this whole controversy. But I do hold, and the thing that, that uh, made me federal vision at all, is I do believe in an object, uh, 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 the objectivity of the visible covenant, the objectivity of um, uh, the visible church, and its genuine relationship to God in Christ. And that was the hinge of our debate back in 2004. Right. That's what we were talking about. But I absolutely affirm that if a, if a person is not regenerated by the Holy Spirit in, turn, in his heart, if he's not, doesn't have the heart of stone taken away and the heart of flesh uh, replacing it, uh, done by the Holy Spirit, he's lost. It doesn't matter what kind of Christian he was or calls himself. He's the kind of Christian that is going to hell. He's, he, he, doesn't, he was not a member of what classic Reformed theology would call the invisible church. He's not going to be part of what I would call the eschatological church. He didn't have the root of the matter in him. And the root of the matter is faith. Uh, begins with faith, continues by faith, finishes by faith. And so one of the weird things in, this, in the, the trolls who come out, when if, if I attack uh, the people who are dis uh, causing our civilization to disintegrate, and many of our evangelical institution, institutions are disintegrating right along with it, as you pointed out, the trolls come out, and one of the things they say over and over and over is federal vision, he denies justification by faith alone. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I don't deny justification by faith alone. I affirm it stoutly from beginning to end. I don't deny the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ. I don't deny the imputation of the passive obedience of Christ as a forensic act that God performs at the point of, a, of an individual's true conversion. That's, that happens, and I've maintained that now, maintained it all the way through. Okay. All right, Patrick. So we've heard from Doug Wilson on James White's show, The Divided Line. I think, and I think that's actually released on Canon Press as well. All right. We heard from the horse's mouth. He said he believes in justification by grace through faith alone, and he believes in the act of obedience of Christ and imputation as, the, as historically held by Reformed people. What say you? Is that the truth? Has he, has he always held to that view? <laughs> Well, when you look at, at the books that are out there and look at the, the quotations from essays, from tape transcripts, and from, from um, all the stuff that is, is fairly uh, readily available out there, um, he's, he states um, that, that works are an instrument uh, of justification. He does not um, accept 
the way that historic reform theology has exegeted James chapter two, uh, for example, um, and does say that um, works justify us uh, before God. Uh, it's very clear uh, that that is in fact what he what he's saying. And just uh, just a few quotations. I've got a bunch of a bunch of notes here. I want to try to get through some of those. Um, the issue with with him in particular has never been what is the grounds of our uh, justifications. It's never been what is the grounds of our salvation. The, the question is, are good works in any way an instrument of justification? Um, one, one quotation I wanted to give from the book, Reformed is Not Enough, page 138. Uh, he quotes um, approvingly from an author named Corey Soraya and, and says this quote, Corey Soraya notes the importance of this in questions of apostasy. This does not mean that God is surprised by our actions by no means. It means that this is how we see things played out in the providential fulfilling of the decrees of God. The means by which men apostatize from the covenant is unfaithfulness. The means by which men persevere in the covenant is faithfulness. In other words, to assert that men fall away be because their salvation was contingent upon continued faithfulness in the gospel is not to deny the sovereignty of God at all. Now, the problem there is this makes salvation contingent on the covenant faithfulness of a believer. And the problem is that that suffix to the word um, faith, fullness, uh, that makes it uh, a characteristic of the person, something inherent uh, in the person. Um, we're saved according to God's word by faith apart from works, by faith apart from obedience, by faith apart from work, by believing, not by working, not by our personal faithfulness. Okay, now, another thing, another thing that came up um, in, in, in his heyday, now he just put in the quotation he just uh, played, he said he's always maintained this from beginning to end, has never deviated from justification by faith alone. Uh, he was asked once um, uh, in an interview that there's a transcript of it. I can't recall where where exactly it's found, but he was said it was said to him in Romans 11:25. You cite continuing in goodness. Um, are are good works the fruit or the cause of our salvation? And he said, "Yes." Say that again, please. He he was asked, Doug, when you cite continuing in goodness in Romans 11 in your 2002 lecture. Is that the cause of our salvation or the fruit of it? And Wilson's answer was yes, followed by laughter all around. Yeah. Now, I, I want to say, <clears throat> as a minister of the gospel, as someone who's conducted ordination exams, licensure exams, if I asked a candidate for licensure or ordination, the question, is our continuing in goodness the fruit or the cause of our salvation? If their answer was yes, the exam would be over. <laughs> wow. We would be done. We would be done. Um, laughter all around. Then he, he follows it up with, look, in Colossians, Paul says that you, as you receive Christ, so walk in him. So the way we become Christians is the way we stay Christians, is the way we finish as Christians, by faith from first to last. So we continue in God's goodness by trust. We stand by faith. They fell, but you stand. Doing that to the end is how you come to your salvation. Okay, so doing good and continuing in goodness, as, as he says here, we continue in God's goodness by trust. We stand by faith. They fell, but you stand. Doing that to the end is how you come to your salvation. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. I believe we're saved by faith from first to last, which is why I have been accused of denying sola fide. 
uh, wisdom is vindicated by her children. So if, you, if you're going to say that good works are both the fruit and the cause of our salvation, that, that is a heretical statement. That is, um, that's gravely an error. And one of the, one of the things I wanted to add here as well is, you know, I've talked to a number of people about this over, over the past few years, like guys that are, that are ministers and uh, have asked about th this issue. And one of the things that I've said for, for years is one of the marks of a good teacher is the clarity with which they speak um, and the clarity that they bring to the subjects that they address. And they're not trying to wordsmith stuff. They're, they're not trying to be cutesy and not trying to bedazzle people with, with their, their uh, quick wit and mind and things like that. If you're a teacher, if you're a pastor, you want to labor to be clear, especially on something that is as central to salvation, as central to getting to heaven and not hell as are good works, the fruit or the cause of salvation. The answer to that is they are the fruit, never the cause. And our confession states that emphatically in many places. It states it in the larger catechism. You know, how does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God. Not, not because of any other saving graces that accompany it or of good works that are the fruits of it. But only as it is an instrument by which we lay hold of Christ. If you have confusion there, if you have confusion in your understanding on that question, the role of good works and how we're going to get to heaven and the role the good works plays regarding how you get to heaven or how you don't get to heaven. Uh, that's very, very serious stuff. Uh, and you need to be as clear as you can possibly be and not, not ever say in response to a softball question like that. I mean, that, that's, that is an easy question. Are, are, is continuing in goodness the cause of salvation or the fruit of it? Um, that's an easy, that's an easy one. That, that is a, that's a Sunday school level uh, softball, you pitch a, a, someone who's being examined at the beginning to kind of lighten the mood because they'll get it right, right? Right. But certainly, if so, if someone says in response to that, yes, um, we we have a big problem there because good works are the fruit; they're the fruit of our salvation, never the cause of it. But, but Patrick, we, that's we... uh, that's not what he meant by that. I mean, yeah, you have to take it in context. <laughs> Are there other uh, evidences of uh, such a statement that he said? Yes. Yes. Um, in chapter 21 of Reformed is Not Enough, I want to read this, this uh, quotation. And um, because this is, I, I will say that um, in, in many years of, of you know, studying, reading, and uh, try, trying to be a, a pastor, trying to be a decent pastor, this is one of the most confusing statements I have ever read in my life. Just li listen to this. This is from... Chapter 21 of Reformers Not Enough, The Greatness of Justification by Faith. He says, uh, this is a quotation from Randy Booth. It is simplistic to assume that the Bible speaks of justification in only one way. The fact that justification in one sense is forensic in nature, one is declared righteous in Christ, is not diminished by the assertion that in another sense, one is justified by works. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. This second sense of justification is a demonstration of the reality or fact of the first sense of forensic justification. Okay, so, so far, so good. It's not that bad of a quotation. <laughs> now, he, Wilson says, we maintain that we are not justified by our good works, 
but that we are justified to good works, Ephesians 2.10. In saying this, we have to refer back to an earlier chapter on systematics as an exercise in interpretation and not replacement. We also have to say, now listen carefully to this, we also have to say using biblical language that we are justified by good works. And then he gives a quotation from the section on good works from the Westminster Confession, chapter 16.2. He gives a, a citation from the confession that's not relevant at all to what he's talking about. And this, this citation says, these good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. So what does that have to do with, with, with saying we're that the Bible says, using biblical language, we're justified by good works? If you're going to quote that from James 2.24, you need to give the context of what that whole passage is talking about. Yeah. Because what is James 2.14 to 26 talking about? Can you guys imagine how many times I've had to address that question yeah. over the past 25 years? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. But, it is, but actually, wait a second. Wait a second, Patrick, okay. though. Let's say someone comes back and asks you, you're being unfair. You're creating a straw man here. Wilson is not saying that. All Wilson is saying is something that R.C. Sproul would say, that we're justified by faith alone, but a faith that is not alone. Yeah, I, I wish that's what he was saying, but he maintains that when James says that we're justified by works, it is speaking of justification in the same sense that Paul is. Hmm. So again, we're going back to the same problem that we covered before in our Piper mm -hmm. podcast, right? It's mm -hmm. the same problem here. It is. And, and the issue is the, the thing, another point, you know, let, let me, let me just read a little bit more of this, this uh, quotation here. I want you to see what else he's saying. So he gives a quotation from the, the confession, but then he goes on to say this, these good works are not in themselves the ground of salvation, but they are ground of, they are the ground of assurance of salvation. They are the fruit of the tree, not the cause of the tree. They are the evidence that the tree is alive and growing. They're the fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. Good works are instruments through which believers show how thankful they are. This also has the result of fortifying, um, fortifying assurance of salvation. Good works are a blessing and edification to other believers and unbelievers see in good works the adornment of the gospel itself and so on and so forth. Okay, and then he, he goes on from there. I just want to read one more little block of, of text here, then I'll, I'll hear from you guys here. It says, consequently, in the historic Protestant view, good works are inseparable from biblical salvation. They're not a condiment to flavor a raw justification, but rather are definitionally related to justification. Justification and sanctification are not like salt and pepper or ham and eggs, two things that go well together. They are definitionally interrelated like the terms husband and wife. If there is no wife, then by definition, there is no husband. If there is no husband, then by definition, there is no wife. Apart from sanctification, justification does not exist. Apart from justification, sanctification does not exist. We distinguish the two readily, but we cannot separate them. And I agree with all of this. Everything's, everything's fine. We should be able to tell at a glance who is the husband and who is the wife, but we cannot remove one without removing the other. Now, listen, because this is the case, James can speak of justification by works. He's not speaking of rabbinical works righteousness or Pelagian self-salvation or medieval merit theology. In other words, there are certain works, as long as they're not rabbinic works righteousness or Pelagian self-salvation or medieval merit theology, you can speak of justification by works in the same way that Paul does. I see. So if they're done in love or they're done in a righteous manner, therefore, that's what brings justification before the creator, correct? Yeah, that's, that, that's, I'm not sure how else you can understand it. I, I really okay. don't. So what that means is that again, that means that our works are somewhat 
are somehow instrumental, correct? Yeah, yeah, it, it and, works our instruments, yeah. Right, and so what that also means is that there is no difference at that point between a Roman Catholic view of justification versus their view. Yeah, I mean, minus a Pope and some extra sacraments. I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's very similar to that, yeah. Yeah, they're always um, referring back to James 2. I mean, I'm not a biblical scholar, but what I understand from James 2 is that James is referring to a justification between men, not between God. So how can they not see that being scholars themselves, quote unquote? Yeah, I, the thing is, James chapter 2, verses 14 through, I, actually the whole, the whole chapter, it all flows together very well. Um, but verse 14, it says, what good is it if a man says he has faith? but has no works. Now, what do we call that when a person stands up in the church and says they have faith? That's a profession of faith, right? Yeah. It's a person making a profession of faith. A profession of faith cannot be justified merely by saying you have faith. If there's no change at all in the person, then that, that profession of faith is not therefore justified. A person's not justified in saying he has faith. Now, when you look at the episodes, this is the key to their error in James chapter two. And you look at, you, you can read all of them, Rich Lusk and all the rest of them. They, they all grossly misinterpret James chapter two. They, they all get it completely wrong. Listen, please. Romans chapter four, verse 11 makes their interpretation of James chapter two impossible. Romans four, verse, uh, excuse me, Romans four, verse 10 and 11. Listen to Romans four, verse 10. Paul here is is explicating the doctrine of justification and he's addressing specifically abraham and he asks the question how then was it credited how then was it imputed how under what circumstances was righteousness imputed to abraham for his justification while he was circumcised or uncircumcised not while circumcised but while uncircumcised when was abraham justified it was when he was uncircumcised so if you're going to interpret James chapter two, which is Abraham's offering of Isaac, where, where does the offering of Isaac take place in relationship to Abraham's circumcision? Years later. Now, if you're going to say James chapter two is talking about justification before God, rather than the justification of a person's saying they have faith, then you just handed the, the victory to Paul's enemies. If Paul's enemies could say to him, hey, with Abraham, it was credited both. It was before and after. His circumcision. Mm. No, it, he says, in fact, a participle is used there. It, not, it was not while being circumcised, but while being uncircumcised. At no point after his circumcision was Abraham justified in the Pauline sense that's used in Romans 4. And if you're going to say James 2 is talking about justification in the same way Paul is, you have an irreconcilable contradiction and you just gave the victory to Paul's enemies. Because his whole point is, it wasn't by his circumcision, and it wasn't by any works that Abraham did either. Abraham believed in Yahweh. He, he rested in the promise of God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Abraham's okay. profession of faith is, is justified by his offering of Isaac. Okay, so Pat, let's just say that Doug Wilson, as he says before, let's just say this, that he says that Look, I'm not like the rest of the federal vision, right? Um, what does he say? I'm Amber Ale. Isn't that what he says? With James to stuff. I didn't even know what that meant. I had to look that up. Right, right. <laughs> so he's, he's Amber Ale, okay? 
and he's not like the rest of the Federal Vision guys. So look at he believes in imputation. First of all, I want you to give us a definition of what imputation is okay. and what he means by imputation. Okay. Well, um, the, the Hebrew term, the Hebrew term that's used in Genesis 15, 6, uh, the Hebrew term chashav um, is translated into the Greek as logizomai. It just means, it's like a banking term. It means to think, account, consider, or reckon. Um, Paul uses that term, uh, the Greek verb logizomai for impute. He uses it 11 times uh, in Romans chapter 4 by itself. Um, and it's, it has to do with the imputation, the legal crediting of the, the whole life of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ to the account, the, the ledger of the believing sinner in the sight of God. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 4, verse 6, when he says, just as David speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin this is one thing i will say you know matthew onig that's that's surprising it's surprising like back when we did the piper thing too because piper will say the same thing he'll, he'll affirm yeah i believe that christ's act of obedience is imputed to the account of the believing sinner and my, my question is how can that not be sufficient for someone to get into heaven if you have the righteousness that was achieved and performed by jesus christ what more could possibly be added to that for a person's justification? What, what else do they need to be right with God to go to heaven? And I, I think that Wilson would say, I mean, as far as imputation, he'd probably say it, it, he, that's exactly what he thinks it means. It is a legal crediting of the righteousness of Christ to the account of the believing sinner. Uh, the problem is all of this other confusing uh, stuff that's said about works also being uh, instruments of justification before God and, and all of that, that, that just muddies the water. And like you said, well, I'm, I'm um, uh, amber ale as opposed to oatmeal stout in my federal vision theology. One of the things that, that happened, I don't know if you guys, did you guys see the, the interview that Chris Arnson did with Wilson on this stuff? No, I did not. A while ago. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Iron sharpens iron. You need to find that. I did a, a podcast and at that podcast I called uh, Doug Wilson and Deniers of Justification by Faith Alone. Chris Arnson played quotations, played clips of Steve Schlissel. Are you guys familiar with Schlissel? I am. Okay. Played clips of Schlissel. Schlissel's denials of justification by faith alone are some of the most crass and clear I've ever heard. And he played them for Wilson. And Wilson kept trying to say, Wait, well, I, I have heard this now. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Okay, you did hear it. Okay. Yeah. And eventually Arnson, Arnson, you know, tries his best to keep him on task. Like, like, yeah, but what Schlissel really is saying, you know, that faith in Christ is not enough and our obedience does. I and mean, he was debating John Otis on that very question. Otis was defending the gospel and Schlissel's attacking it. At one point, Arnson thinks to ask the question. So, Doug, would you say that my friend Steve Schlissel believes in justification by faith alone? It's like this little pause. And he says, yeah. And Arnson, you can hear Arnson go, really? <laughs> and I say, look, Schlissel, like I've got some quotations from, from Schlissel here that are pretty, pretty surprising. Um, and if, if Wilson would repudiate people like this, like Schlissel and Rich Lusk, and like some of the more, the clearer guys on, on these issues who are so clear, in their denial of the gospel, I, I would take him more seriously in terms of him saying, "Well, I'm 
I've moved away from this or whatever. I, I wish he would do that. I wish he would say, yeah, I don't agree with Schlissel. Schlissel's embracing of a new perspective and and Schlissel's comments about this are definitely wrong and, and so on and so forth. So, okay. Understood. We see the contrast here and we see how he accepts false doctrine as orthodox. But again, let's go back. So you gave that definition of imputation. Now, how do you believe Doug Wilson believes imputation? I think he he probably believes it's Christ. I mean, he said he believes it's Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us. I think that he just doesn't think that that in and of itself by itself is is enough without um, the works that we do, which are also uh, instruments of our justification before God. So, I mean, that's he he would say. I mean, he did say that he believes that the righteousness of Christ it's right Christ's righteousness that is imputed uh, to the account of the of the sinner and. You know, that's the the grounds of our justification. And see, when you, when you hear something like that, you think, how could you possibly have any problem with that? It's not it's not with that statement. It's with all the other stuff that you see uh, written in, in his books and the other things that, that he said. So, I mean, what do you guys think? What do you guys think? I mean, he, he means by imputation. I think he redefines it. Um, so in my opinion, because um, he does talk about faithfulness all the time right right it's, that's the problem yeah so are, mm -hmm. what are we imputing is it strictly the righteousness of christ and his atoning sacrifice or are we imputing our faithfulness in some way so if he's including faithfulness as as an instrument then we must be so and i mean i've heard it before they just yeah. redefine terms in order to fit their system right Right. Yeah. Listen to what he says here. He was asked about justification and he was asked this question. So there's there's justification ensuant to that and ensuant to that is sanctification, a one two step, whereas for you, it's all of a piece. And listen to his answer here. He says justification to them. And I guess this would be people like us. Justification to them is something that happens and has to be tied up with a bow. And then we can move on to sanctification. Yeah. Oh, and, and I'm like, I'm like, okay. I'm like, yep, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> um, yeah. That's right. Etern eternal life is a gift of God that, um, in fact, is described in scripture yeah. as a gift, <laughs> as a gift of God. <laughs> so, Thanks for elaborating on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are his words. That, those are, that's what he said. So, yeah. And yeah. Here's a, here's the question. Why would someone write a book called Reformed is Not Enough if they've always held to classic federal reformed theology? Well, that's the $64,000 question, I think, is if, if you, on one hand, you want to be accepted in all those circles as being fully confessional and you want, you want to be accepted as that. And then there's this book yeah, it's it's not enough. Reformed is not enough that there's all this additional truth that we've supposedly mined out of scripture. And that was one thing in the original Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church conference that he he really emphasized that, you know, we can't believe that the Westminster Confession is the final word on on what we're supposed to believe about stuff. And that, you know, we can't we can't have the attitude, no more truth, no more truth, no more truth as allowed. It's kind of like, yeah, well, certainly we, we can grow in our insights and there there's we learn from God's word. But the fact of the matter is how we're made right with God 
and how we're justified before God and the proper relationship between uh, faith and good works. And the fact that throughout the New Testament, faith in Jesus Christ is the diametric opposite of works when it comes to justification before God. And, and also the, all the stuff that they did in that conference, the original 2002 conference and all the things they've done since then, attacking the law gospel distinction and saying, you know, it's all law, it's all gospel. The, the law is the gospel and all, and all this kind of thing. And you think, okay, the law is good. The law is just, the, the law is holy. It's a gift of God. But when it comes to justification before God, the law cannot help you with that. Okay, listen to the word of God. Let's make sure that we let scripture do our talking here. Romans. What are you, what are you a Lutheran, Pat? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a conscientious Christian that wants people to go to heaven. So, you know, as a, I mean, in all sincerity, uh, I, I think often about like having waded through a lot of this Federal Vision stuff. I have a whole bookshelf of, of Federal Vision books uh, over there that I've waded through over the years because I had to fight some of this stuff when I lived in Cincinnati because there was a big uh, a classical Christian school. You guys know Wilson's big in the Association of Classical Christian Schools and, and all that kind of thing. But I had to read all this stuff and just the confusing stuff and how ambiguous it is. And, you know, if, if nothing else, um, if, if someone was constantly saying that they couldn't tell what I was talking about, and I'm not talking about like attacks from non-reformed people. I get attacked by people that aren't Calvinists all the time. But if heavyweight reformed theologians were constantly saying what is this guy talking about after me trying to clarify it in a dozen books over 20 years and exams that you can go listen to and people still don't know what i'm talking about clearly i've missed my calling and i'm not supposed to be doing what i'm doing yeah wouldn't you agree with that agree. if nobody can Absolutely. understand what i mean yep. then what good am i as a teacher okay and it's right. not the case well everybody's misrepresenting me and everybody's being unfair I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. And all of the denominations that did study committee reports and they all name him and they all give these quotations and the, the answer is always the same. You're misrepresenting, you're misrepresenting, you're misrepresenting. But listen, listen to God's word though, listen to this. Faith in Christ is not works. Faith is not faithfulness. Faith is not obedience. Uh, we're not justified by our good works. Listen to scripture, Romans 4, 14. For if those who are of the law, meaning those who are trying to get into heaven by their faithfulness, if they're heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. When it comes to justification, we okay, we love the law of God. The law is wonderful. Tears and streams of water flow down our face because men do not keep God's law. We love the law of God. We want to run in God's commandments because he has enlarged our heart, it says in Psalm 119. But when it comes to justification, the law can only send you to hell. Therefore, Paul says, the, the conclusion of the argument, Romans 4, 16, therefore, it is of faith. Justification is by faith, by relying on someone else, relying upon Christ so that it would be according to grace. If we, if you and I get into heaven, if good works are instruments in our justification, then we're not saved by grace. That's Paul's argument. Right. It is by faith so that it would be according to grace, so that the promise would be sure to all the seed. I've shared that, that verse of scripture, that little block of text with people on their deathbeds before and have helped people come to see and understand more sure the pro so that the promise would be sure to all the seed. Why, why can we be sure? Why can we have this guarantee that we're going to go to heaven? Because it is by faith in Christ alone. He does all the saving. And that's why it's, it's of grace. Faith it comports with grace. 
because faith is not working or obeying or doing anything like that. Faith simply receives and rests upon Christ so that the promise would be sure. If we got into heaven by good works, even to some small, tiny little degree, promise wouldn't be sure, would it? And it wouldn't be grace anymore either. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. And people... Yeah, Right. And, and people wonder why they don't have any assurance when they listen to these guys. I, I have you you guys. Well, you probably wouldn't be surprised um, how many people have contacted me um, who've made their way out of um, CREC churches, Federal Vision churches, just from listening to you know a few things, a little podcast. I always think, you know, I, I live in the mountains of northeast Tennessee and I'm nobody. I'm a, the pastor of a little church here. But if you have the word of God, um, you're greater than than any Hope or counsel, as Luther said, and all we have to do is just let the word of God do its thing and have helped a lot of people come out of that. You know, I remember a guy, a guy that was really taken in by this stuff. He he said that a federal vision uh, pastor kept quoting Colossians 1.23 to him. Listen to this text, um, Colossians 1.21 to 23. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. And this guy's like, see, I mean, if we continue in the faith, we, we've got to be faithful. And I was like, I said, brother, look at the rest of the verse. Grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Mm. As soon as you're trusting that your faithfulness doing it, this verse does apply to you. This you is, have to trust in Christ alone. This is the same error that you hear with Piper, that you hear with MacArthur, that you hear with Lawson, confusing faith with faithfulness. That's right. And it's not the same thing. You know, the, the Old Testament uh, term and the, the New Testament of the, the noun pistis and the verb pistuo, it simply means to, to believe and trust him. Uh, what, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? See, here's, here's the thing. If someone says, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ. I have faith in Christ. If any part of them is relying upon their good works in any way as an instrument of justification or, or anything of the kind, they haven't really believed in Jesus Christ then. Yeah. They haven't. Yeah. Believe in Jesus Christ means you are relying upon his righteousness to get you past the final judgment into heavenly glory. And his cross alone as the satisfaction for all your sins. That's what faith in Christ means. And if you try to fold works into faith or you try to combine it with all this other this other highfalutin stuff that these guys are saying, you really are distorting what is, in fact, a very, very simple truth. And there's no there's no initial justification and then future justification. That's one thing, you know, Rich, Rich Lusk. Um, it, who has sat on, on panels with Wilson for, for years at conferences. Lusk talks about initial justification. He talks about future justifications, plural. And you think, <laughs> when we are justified, when, it, when a sinner is brought to repentance and they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are united to Christ by faith in him. They are united to him and their verdict before the law of God and before the tribunal of God is changed from condemned to justified once and for the rest of eternity. And it's based solely, completely, and only on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we rest upon that and nothing else. And you know what else? I, know, I, I took some notes here as I was preparing for this. The federal vision, like Piper's theology, 
is an overreaction to the nominalism that, that um, dominates American Christianity today. It's an overreaction to it. What it's, do you mean by nominalism? What do you mean by nominalism? nominalism? No, nominalism simply meaning there are so many people who just say, I'm a Christian because I grew up in the church, right? Mm -hmm. I was baptized in this church. I walked an aisle once, never been to church again. I live out of wedlock with my girlfriend, but I'm a Christian. They're overreacting right. to that by trying to hinge salvation on, on good works. We cannot answer that problem the way that these men are answering it. We have to answer it the way the Bible does. And that is, what shall we say then? Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? What's Paul's answer to, to the nominalism and to the antinomianism? It's regeneration and the change of heart that God brings in our lives. And he dethrones the power of sin and sets us free from being its slave. That's the biblical answer, not this stuff. Yeah, amen. Okay, Pat, since we're on the topic of law and gospel, the distinction between the two, let's talk about what we call in Reformed theology or Orthodox uh, Reformed theology as federal theology, right? That's covenant theology. You know, let's talk about this in regards to the covenant of works. Like, what is the covenant of works? What is the Orthodox view of covenant of works and what is wilson's view of the covenant of works i think this is key right because we're talking about law gospel distinctions and what the nature of grace and the nature of law correct yes, absolutely those are extremely important i'm really, really glad you brought that up because there there's an error in in wilson's covenant theology and this is an error I've heard many times. I, I, I remember the very first time I ever heard it, the covenant of works. Okay, what, what is the covenant of works? Mac, let me let me just make sure instead of trying to quote it from memory. <laughs> yeah. And then all and then also what is the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption? Yes. Okay, well, let's start, let's let's start with the covenant of redemption because that's logically prior to, to both. Covenant of redemption is the inner Trinitarian covenant between God the Father, God the Son. And God, the Holy Spirit, and you see Jesus really, really speaks about it in great detail in the Gospel of John. It's God, the Father, elects a people and gives them to Jesus Christ. And you see that in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And then verse 38 and 39 was, I would always describe that as a two by four upside my head from 25 years ago. For I have come down from heaven, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. And John 17, verse two, um, he says to give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And also Ephesians chapter one, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world. So you have the church given as a love gift to the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit uh, covenants with the father and the son to be sent into the world and to apply Christ finished work to his elect as, as he raises up ministers and evangelists to take the gospel out. And part of that as well is also the, the order of God's decrees. You have the decree of to create, the decree that man would fall into sin. You have the decree of, of election. You know, I'm not going to get into the infra or uh, superlapsarian stuff, but that's the covenant of, of redemption. Okay. Now, in history, there are two primary covenants. Okay, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. You can also call it, it's called the covenant of works in the confession. Uh, question 11 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls it a covenant of life. What, why why did it, does one call it the covenant of works and the other covenant of life? It's called the covenant of works when it's emphasizing the condition for life. When it's called the covenant of life, it's emphasizing the reward for those works. 
Okay, that's all there is to it. Okay, that, this, there's, there's not like a bunch of different covenants. It's just two different ways of referring to the same one. And it says, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now, the problem in Wilson's theology, and I, and I heard this from a number of people, uh, other people, even when I was at seminary, is that the, the covenant of works is a gracious covenant. And it's not. Mm. It's not a gracious covenant. Yeah. In fact, there's no, I've said this over, I've preached entire sermons on this, because it took me a little while to, to feel confident enough to, to say this, but I have never seen it defended exegetically from the text of Genesis 2 or anywhere else from Hosea 6, 7 or Romans 5, 12 to 19 or anywhere else in scripture that there's grace in the covenant of works. And the reason for that, there's no need for grace yet. Man hasn't fallen into sin. Why would man need grace in the first covenant? And that's why point one of the confession does not call it grace. It calls it voluntary condescension. God enters into covenant with man, but there's no grace in this covenant because there's no need for grace. And the problem is, if you say that all of God's interactions with man are based on grace, then eventually you're going to have, if you have grace everywhere before and after the fall, then in effect, you end up with grace nowhere. And, and that's that's one of the problems. So the first covenant. All right. So, yeah, go ahead. so, so real quick, would you say the reason why they believe this to be the case is because they don't distinguish between the law and gospel and the law to them is actually good news. Yes. In a sense. Yeah, that's right. Because it's part of it's, it's grace, you know, it, it's a gracious thing and it sounds like it exalts grace. It sounds like, man, if you say there's grace everywhere, it does not exalt grace. No, it actually diminishes grace infinitely. So. The law is good. It the is. law is good, but it but it's not good news. It's not good news to the sinner. No, and Adam, prior to the fall, had the ability to keep that law. Once he fell into sin, um, our, we can no longer ju justification by law keeping ceased to be possible for mankind once Adam fell into sin. It's off the table now, and also getting into heaven to any degree whatsoever, satisfying the requirements of God's law or rendering satisfaction for sin by anything that we do at all ceased to be possible as soon as Adam fell into sin, and that's why Jesus has to come into the world as the as the new federal covenant head of His elect people. Romans five twelve through nineteen spells that out very clearly. And that's really what, what federal theology is all about, okay? It's that you have the head of the human race, Adam. He represents the entire human race in a covenant of works, okay? Because it requires obedience and it requires that Adam not succumb to that temptation. Um, had Adam uh, sustained himself and, and maintained his righteousness through that temptation, he would have earned by pure personal merit the right to eat from the tree of life. And you notice at the end of the book of Revelation, that's where we end up again, back in the in the garden to eat from the tree of life, because Christ, the, the second Adam, he has earned that right by his righteousness for us. And that would be called the act of obedience of Christ, correct? Right. Yes, he enters into the broken covenant of works. You see, that's to me, what, one of the greatest testimonies to the fact that it's Christ alone, by faith alone, by which we get all the way into heaven, is the incarnation. Jesus came into the world because you and I can't contribute anything to it. Someone's got to start. Amen. Over. Someone's got to start over sinlessly. That's why Jesus could not have a human father. He comes into the world sinless and maintains that course his entire life. He's tempted in every way that we are, as Hebrews chapter two, Hebrews chapter four say, tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin, to achieve that righteousness, to to get that reward from the covenant of works that Adam failed to get. 
And the thing is, everyone is still in that covenant of works, and someone's got to fulfill it for us, and that's what Christ does. Amen. And truly, man. And we receive and rest upon that. And that, that's, I mean, when I think about dying and, you know, we have a, a dear, a dear Christian lady who's in hospice right now and, you know, go see her pretty regularly. I've been taking one of my kids with me to go see her and reading scripture to her. And, and I, having been just reviewing all this federal vision stuff, I, I just, I just can't help but think, what would it do if I brought this stuff and started reading stuff like this? about you know co-instruments of justification baptism and good works that are non-self-salvific non-pelagian and uh non-meritorious i mean it, it would you'd be confusing people to hell is what you'd be doing when the gospel is such a simple thing it's such a, a gloriously simple message you know even my kids can get it so okay pat mm -hmm. so we talked about the covenant of works and you gave us a definition of what the covenant of works is now in contrast to the covenant of grace, let's give, can you please give us a definition of what the covenant of grace is? Yes. Okay. And the Westminster standards, which is always a great place to, to look for, for really solid, good biblical definitions. 7.3 man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant. Okay. So the fall made getting into heaven by works in any, in any way, shape or form impossible. The Lord was pleased. Thank praise be to God to make a second covenant commonly called the covenant of grace whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by jesus christ requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved isn't that beautiful how simple that is <laughs> and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his holy spirit to make them willing and able to believe so the covenant of grace is god offers life and salvation to uh, to the fallen race of man um, and gives it to them by faith in Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So by the blood of Christ, we're saved from the wrath of God that we inherit from Adam because we're all covenant breakers too. We broke that first covenant too. But Jesus Christ is the, the, the new federal head that the the english word federal is from the latin term uh, fedare which means a covenant jesus is the covenant head of the new covenant when we believe in him we're translated we're taken out of column adam and put into column christ because when adam's our federal head we get uh sin a corrupt nature hell and damnation when we repent and believe in jesus christ we're translated over under column christ where we get forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, the imputation of his righteousness, and a legal title to eternal life, because Christ's righteousness has achieved that for us. And that's why Paul says that the promise would be sure. It's by faith so that it would be by grace so that it would be certain. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Is that, uh, would, that, would that be considered union with Christ when you're talking about being in the column with Christ? Exactly. Yeah, we were in union with, with Adam. Uh, every human being on earth is either in union with Adam or they're in union with Christ as their federal representative, as their federal head. Where the word talks about <laughs> so, being I mean, in him in, constantly. Yeah, the in him relationship, which, you know, yeah, <clears throat> that's a whole other issue. Like Richard Gaffin has kind of overemphasized that to, to um, almost to the detriment of really seeing the imputation of Christ's righteousness, whereas like for Calvin, and, and I think Cal Calvin's just following Paul, once a person's in Christ, that benefit of Christ's righteousness being imputed to them is automatic. The, the, the moment someone is, is brought into union with Christ, Christ's righteousness is theirs. They, they are literally clothed in that divine garment 
you see why it's so insulting to speak of works as instruments of justification or anything. It, it is, it really is an attack on the all sufficiency of what Christ did to save us. Yeah. You know, I, okay. I have something just quick to say. So, and you, you referenced the uh, Romans four, uh, mm-hmm. Patrick. So it, earlier in that chapter, it does distinguish between, uh, works and faith. So uh, right there in verses yeah. four and five, right. Where Paul, talk, well, yeah. Paul says now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but, uh, as his due and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is making a distinction between works and believing. So there's a distinction between faith and obedience. Absolutely. Wait a second, Onig, you're, you're not reading, you know, you're reading like a biblicist. You're not taking other passages into consideration like Romans 2. I mean, doesn't Romans 2 say that we're actually saved by our works? Uh, no, it doesn't. No, it does not. No, it does not. <laughs> Can I, can I, may I address that, please? Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Romans two thirteen. Well, actually, it begins back at like Romans two um, seven and following. But Romans two thirteen is the passage that they like to quote: "For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified." That is a true statement. And the problem is there ain't nobody that does it. And that's what uh-huh. Paul, that's what Paul goes on to say. You know, yeah, uh, do this and you will live. The doers of the law will be justified. And I would say, you know, uh, if a person really does think that that they've done the law they are uh miserably deluded because they haven't and really romans chapter 2 romans 1 18 through 32 that block of text is primarily aimed at gentiles look at all the horrible things that they do paul then turns on the jews in romans chapter 2 and says who are you uh, who who judges another when you do all the same things and you look at uh, verse 17 see romans 2 17 indeed you are called a jew and rest on the law and make your boast in god and so on and so forth there the jews really thought that if they knew the law that they could be justified by it and the whole point is no you have to do it to be justified and paul's summary in the whole book in romans 3 20 is Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law always is doing that convicting work so that we're relying on Christ for our justification, for our salvation. Once a person is declared righteous, once we're in union with Christ and we have that gift of eternal life, then we look to the law as fatherly instruction uh, to a child. Here's how I live my life to please the Lord, but I'm never relying on my good works to do anything. Um, except to manifest my gratitude to God. Yeah, I, I call those people. I I call those people uh, who uh, rely on their good works. Uh, they have the uh, rich young ruler persona, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kept it from my youth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And think about it. Think think about the Westminster Confession, sixteen point five. R- really great summary of good works here. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. You have to make that distinction between uh, good works that are accepted in Christ for reward, as the confession teaches, I think the Bible clearly teaches, there is a reward for good works, but that reward is not getting into heaven, it's not salvation, it's not justification. Okay, we're, we're rewarded for our good works. 
Um, but that's not salvation, and we're not granted eternal life on the basis of them. And even those good works have been prepared for beforehand, right? That's so we should down. walk in them. That's right. That's right. And the confession is very, very clear to qualify it. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And it's like all those passages that speak about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ and, you know, rewards those who build with wood, hay and straw versus gold, silver and precious stones. Those are supposed to be an encouragement to us. And these legalists turn them into something that terrifies people. Like you better have enough fruit to show or you're not getting into heaven. Total misunderstanding of the purpose of all those passages. The problem with, with Wilson is his definition of faith enables him to sit and read from the Westminster Confession and say, see, I, th I, this is what I believe. But if you've defined faith in some way as law keeping, as works, uh, that's not the biblical doctrine of faith. That's certainly not what the Apostle Paul meant when he said we're justified by faith apart from works. Now, I've said many times, if these guys are right that you know faith is works, that they're used interchangeably, then really you have Paul saying we're justified by works apart from works, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. Okay. Yeah. And listen, listen to this quote. Can I, may I read a quotation to you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I pulled this from uh, Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology. He has a little section called Saving Faith's Character as the Diametrical Opposite of Law-Keeping. He says, quote, with a gloriously monotonous regularity, Paul pits faith off over against all law-keeping as its diametrical opposite as to referent. Whereas the latter relies on the human effort of the lawkeeper looking to himself to render satisfaction before God, the former faith, the former repudiates and looks entirely away from all human effort to the cross work of Jesus Christ, who alone by his sacrificial death rendered satisfaction before God for men. Romans 3.20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.5, to the man who does not work, Oni just quoted this one, the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 4.14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Galatians 2.16, a man is justified, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he just goes on and on, just passage after passage after passage after passage. He says, for such verses, it is plain that Paul taught that justification is by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church has always objected to the use of this use of alone attached to faith, contending that nowhere does Paul say alone when speaking of the faith that justifies and that the, the Bible does where it does attach sola, it's James 2.24, and he goes on from there. And he said Luther responded to that, um, that attack by saying, uh, he said, no, whether Paul does not assert more vehemently that faith alone justifies than I do, although he does not use the word which I have used. For he who says works do not justify, but faith justifies, certainly affirms more strongly that faith justifies than he who says faith alone justifies. And just breaking from the quotation there, the Belgic Confession in its article on justification says we are therefore said to be justified by faith apart from works. That is to say, faith alone. Wow. Yeah. All right. 
One more topic that I think is pertinent before we get going. Is Wilson in that sweater vest dialogue with James White says that what he was really concerned about in the context of the original federal vision debate was people being part of what we the external covenant, correct? Yeah. Um, basically, right. And so basically that we're talking about that there's a dual nature to the covenant, right? That someone can actually be in the covenant, but yet not be regenerate, right? So yeah. we talked about, in other words, the, the visible and the invisible church, right? right? And so he said that was the nature of the debate that he actually had with James White. And I actually remember that debate when it yeah. came down to baptism. I was actually there in person oh, right. when that happened. Wow. I was, yes. Now, the question is, what does he mean by that? Can we delve in a little deeper to that? And what's the problem with Wilson's view when it comes to that? Yeah, well, they make a distinction between covenantal and decretal election. And, because, and they, they do that because they want to say that baptism makes you a Christian. Remember, that was the, what the debate was about with White. It was, does, does Trinitarian baptism make Roman Catholics Christians? Isn't that, wasn't that the thesis of the debate, as I recall? Right, it, because they're baptized in Trinitarian baptism, right. therefore it applies. Yeah, they're they're made objectively part of the the church, and therefore, quote unquote, they're Christians. But but even they recognize you have to make some kind of a distinction because they recognize not every person that's baptized is going to end up in heaven. So then they, they make a distinction between um, covenantal election. So if you're covenantally elect, that means you're baptized. You're you're part of the visible church, but only those that are decretally elect and born again, regenerated, only they are actually going to end up in heaven. The problem, mm -hmm. Matthew and Onig, the problem is when you look at all the statements that these guys made about baptism, I mean, I don't know how you could not see them as sacerdotalists. I mean, they, they really, really speak about all of the benefits of Christ are, are given through baptism to, to people. And, you know, wait a second. What, what is sacerdotalism for the audience? Sacerdotalism is, is the idea um, that grace comes to us through priests administering sacraments to us. So like in the Roman Catholic church, they have, they view, I think Wilson even quoted it. He said, I don't think my friends believe in ex opere operato. That's Latin for by virtue of the work itself. Okay. The idea that Baptism automatically regenerates and justifies someone. Now, I know I, I think Wilson's saying, you know, he, he doesn't believe that. But, man, you look at some of the statements that these guys have got out there. It sure sounds like that's what they're saying. You know, they, they sound like they, you know, baptism confers all the blessings of the covenant upon you. I mean, I guess forgiveness of sins and salvation and, and everything else. And that, that's another thing. The, one of the uh, denominations that did a report on this, the Reformed Church in the United States, the RCUS report is really good. It's only 33 pages long, but they give a number of statements pointing out the, you know, the, the things that they say about baptism. It's very clear that they're, they're maintaining that baptism is also um, a way in which we're, we're justified before God. I mean, here, listen, listen from the report here. Someone asked Wilson, do you think baptism is a means of salvation, just not the means of salvation? And his answer was, that's what I think. Wilson argues that the efficacy of baptism is a saving efficacy. Yeah, pretty clear. Yeah, 
So yeah, in in the interview about I think it's about 24 minutes in with James White, he does mention a baptized Christian. He always said a baptized Christian. So baptism mm-hmm. was a prerequisite in his uh, in his opinion. Yeah, and it's it's just a classic example. You know, it's a sad the the history of baptism and the history of the Lord's Supper. What what God, what the Lord Jesus gave His Church really to unite it. Um, people have consistently done the very same thing with baptism that the Jews did with circumcision. They confused the sign with what it signifies, and they thought it did it automatically. And you know, Paul belabored the point. Abraham was not justified after his circumcision; it was before. Mm-hmm. So, Patrick. From what I remember, and remember him hearing and in written form, is that he actually believes that those who are unregenerate, who are in the covenant, are actually in union with Christ somehow, correct? Yeah, yeah. And that's one thing that's really bizarre. Because I know White also debated a fellow named Greg Strawbridge. And and I was asked by some some dear Baptist friends um, that they they asked me, they said, that guy, Strawbridge, they, they were thinking he was a normal Presbyterian. He said that, you know, children are, are like in union with Christ. Do you think that? I said, no, no, I don't. Um, not unless God, by his um, saving grace, has regenerated them. And he, God's not limited by a person's age. He's able to save infants, the unborn, the mentally incapacitated. He's able to do that. Ordinarily, God works through, you know, the means of grace and, and will effectually call someone and they'll make a profession of faith. But he's not limited by that. But no, I do not believe baptism unites a baby to Christ. It simply marks them off and brings them into the the visible uh, church community. Amen. Yeah. Patrick, you know, it's interesting when we talk about this because it sounds oddly familiar um, when you hear people from what's called the new perspective, like uh, N.T. Wright, Mm -hmm. right? It seems that when Wilson talks this way, uh, it's, it's analogous to what we hear from and to write, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems that it's more interested in theology than soteriology in a way, or it confuses the two. Is that correct? Yeah, I, yes, definitely. And all the, the Federal Vision guys have always been accused. You guys are new perspectivists, and they'll, they'll all say, no, we're not. We, we're sympathetic to some of the things that N.T. Wright says. We don't agree with everything that he says. The thing is, Steve Schlissel, though, Schlissel is like hook, line, and sinker, a new perspective man. There's no question about it. I mean, his his theology is that N.T. Wright and those guys are, um, that's what Paul is talking about. It's it's all ecclesiology. It's, it's like monochromatic. It's like a, a screen that only has one color. Everything is ecclesiology. But yeah, that, some of the new perspective guys are definitely have a huge influence on um, the federal vision. And Wilson gives quotations from Wright. I know he, he agrees with some of Wright's stuff, but N.T. Wright's theology is, is heretical to the core. N.T. Wright does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ at all, I'm convinced. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I read what St. Paul really said, when that, when that book was the big buzz, I got it from the library and read it. And I remember when I finished the book, I thought, this guy's entire understanding of the Christian faith can be what it is had Jesus Christ never lived, died, or rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. And you would think that that would be kind of a red flag, but he was praised by you know Reformed authors and people and you think you know rc sproul was asked about right one time someone asked rc sproul um is is nt Wright's view of imputation and justification heretical and you know what sproul said in response to that he said if it isn't then there's no such thing as heresy <laughs> yeah i remember that that's great <laughs> yeah great response 
But yeah, but to Matt's question though, yeah, the new perspectives on Paul seeing everything is related to who's in the church. Yeah, that definitely, there, there's a stream of that that runs through this with this whole idea of the objectivity of the covenant and every baptized person is part of the community. And, and that could even be related to, to the whole notion that I sensed in reading Federal Vision Guys of Christendom and Christian countries and nations and that, that kind of stuff. So I think it all fits together. Yeah, whenever I hear uh, these controversies, um, I, I always re remember that error begets error, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So a lot of a yeah. lot of this uh, is stemming from the the neonomian understandings of faith and obedience. You know, then on top of that, you have to uh, somehow uh, make a conscious attempt to uh, reconcile uh, good works to faith and so on and so but so if you're a neonomian and faith is obedience it, it, it'll logically uh flow from that so it, yeah, it yeah, it's right. a terrible thing i mean yeah. uh, praise god that the, the lord has um you know opened our eyes to be able to uh see that yeah. see that difference yeah i remember when i was in seminary and i first heard i think it might have even been john murray a theologian i really liked spoke about there being grace in the covenant of works and i remember thinking even back then that's a pretty serious thing to say and i remember even back then wondering why would why would adam need grace and thinking if covenant of works if, if law is grace then you could say you're saved by law keeping and say that that's that's gracious too and i just by the mercy of christ knew there's something seriously wrong with that i got to watch out for that um, and you hear stuff like what, what I tell young people will ask, you know, how can I really get grounded in the Christian faith? I just tell them, do a Romans revolution, D do nothing but read Romans every day for like three months. And then you'll, you'll detect this stuff when it comes up and you'll see what's wrong with it. Yeah. That's, that's a good inoculation against all that. <laughs> yeah. Romans and Galatians. Yeah. The, the two books that Steve Schlissel would not allow John Otis to quote from when they debated. Really? He really didn't. Yeah. He told him, you show me that that justification is by faith alone. Don't quote Romans and Galatians. And Otis is like, that's easy. Genesis 15, 6. <laughs> Abraham believed in God. It was accounted for righteousness. That, that's the passage Paul quoted. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> yep. Great, Patrick. So thanks for your exposition in regard to the new perspective and how it relates to the federal vision. So... I guess the question, you know, to most people is, you know, why do you keep on attacking if Doug Wilson has clarified time and time again, even himself has said so. Do you think that he is just being dishonest or do you think he's just confused? What do you think is going on here? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. As far as his motives and everything else, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. The reason I have to, to address this is because the people that I shepherd in this church ask about it. It's the same thing with the John Piper thing. When that came up, people at church asked about him. And I was like, I was wondering, well, why, what, what did he do? Well, he preached this Reformation sermon, you know, on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. You should go listen to it. And it, and it was appallingly bad. And I thought, you know, I've got, I'm a minister. I've got to address that. I need to protect people from that kind of error. It's the same thing with Wilson. The federal vision theology is very big in this area that I minister in here. So that's why when I'm at, when I've been asked about it, I've, I've taken the time to go do work and try to understand what he's saying and what's wrong with it and have tried to expose it. And I, I think that that's an obligation that every minister of the gospel has as far as his motives or, or why, you know, I would, it would be great if he could 
if he would repudiate uh, some of the uh, proponents of the federal vision who are clearly um, way off um, the deep end in terms of biblical orthodoxy, um, but also if he would say unambiguously, faith does not include our obedience in any way, shape, or form, and that the righteousness of Christ alone is what God looks at and is the sole legal grounds of our justification. We receive it by faith alone. Our works do not play any role in our justification or in future justifications or anything like that. Baptism is not a, is not a means of justification either in any sense at all. The thing is, if, if, he, if he wanted to clarify all that, I think he could do that. I don't, I don't know why. why. Why can't some people really just be clear about what, what they're saying about stuff like this? And people are still suspicious and still uh, wondering, what is he really saying? What does he really mean? I'm not sure why, why he, he's doing that the way he is. I think, I think what people find disconcerting about this I mean, obviously, there's a lot of other stuff that people bring up as well, but we're focusing right now on soteriological issues. Is the, the, the problem is, is when you go back and look at, for instance, his article, um, when it says um, his original article that he released, what was that article called? Again? Federal Vision, called, No Moss. No Moss. Right, fed, right, Federal Vision, No Moss, right? And he tried to act like or say that He's always believed what you and I and Onig have believed and that he's just doing away with the federal vision title. Right. And that there was, it's not a really big deal. And when you dig into his writings, like you have given us in this episode, like you did in this episode, it seems to contradict all that. Yes. And then, right. And then not only that is you have another issue where you have all these Napark churches like that. PCA, the OPC, the URCNA, ARP, all these people condemned the federal vision and reacted and wrote articles against him as well. Yeah. Yeah, none and of it them. All, and it's also suspect. And I'm, again, I'm trying to avoid ad hominems here, right. but at the same time, you can't avoid it altogether and not attack him personally yeah and not i don't believe any reform denominations that examine the federal vision came back and said no this is all fine this is within the bounds of of confessional orthodoxy they they all said this is a serious departure um this muddies the, the distinction between justification and sanctification what they're saying about good works and many of them had enough men on their committees that were astute enough to realize and this traces back to norman shepherd there at westminster seminary and that's where a lot of the, the ideas came from and you know men like rich lusk were educated under richard gaffin at westminster seminary and they they see that's where these streams of thought are coming from and i, I would i wish that they would just say look we don't believe the westminster confession we don't believe what it says about sacraments. We don't believe what it says about the church. We don't believe what it says about covenants. We don't believe what it says about assurance. We don't believe what it says about justification, about sanctification. That's fine. Go, go do your own thing then. But that's the part that bothers me is when you can find statement after statement after statement that contradicts, you know, your the confessional standards as they have been historically understood by the men that wrote them and those that are from those streams of, of tradition and thought and, and sit back and say, I believe these confessions. And that's what's upsetting to me about it. Mm. Yeah. Okay, great. I appreciate it, Pat. We appreciate you for coming back on. Yeah, it's good to see you. Always guys, do yeah. such. 
Yeah, it's so it's always great to hook up with you again and to hear what you have to say. You are always so articulate, and um, we want to have you back on again for another episode okay. on another topic in the future. That would be great. I, I would love to, and let's not do it on one of these like one of these guys. <laughs> do something else, right? But, something but, more more uplift, uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, though, I was thinking about I was talking to my kids before I came here um like what are you gonna what are you gonna go do because i had to go to church because I, I have a huge family there's no, if i did this at home i'd be running around trying to find someplace quiet but i said i'm doing an interview i'm back to the reformation it's a podcast and these guys love the reform faith and they they love the reform confessions and they see a lot of the same things that i've been fussing about for years and years that you have all these departures going on and nobody nobody's really saying or doing much about it and so I'm always all for let's let's get good material out there and let's let's try to expose stuff and also just uh, be a voice for the true gospel. And that's one thing, you know, I've always tried to do when I just this is only the second time I've been with you guys. But if I'm ever if I'm ever interviewed by anybody or do stuff, I always try to make sure that the gospel is spoken very clearly during those programs, because that's what people Amen. really need. So. Amen. Well, thank you for being so faithful, man, and defending the gospel. I'm trying. I appreciate you guys. It, it encourages me to know you're out there. <laughs> Seriously, oh. when things are bad, I'm like, Matthew, no, they, they would never be led astray. <laughs> but, uh, so, Thank God. Thank you, know. you man. Yeah. And All we right. live in California. Yeah, I know. The people from that. California. Yeah. A land of fruits and, and nuts. Back. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the left coast. Yes. Yeah. All right. All so, right. Patrick, where can people reach you if they want to contact? Um, let's see. We have a, a new, let me make sure I get the website right. Bridwellheightschurch.org is the name of our church's website. That's B-R-I-D-W-E-L-L, Bridwellheightschurch.org. And from there, you can access my uh, YouTube channel, our church's YouTube channel. And uh, we're in Kingsport, Tennessee. And uh, if anyone ever wants to visit, uh, we're at 108 Bridwell Heights Road in Kingsport, Tennessee. And we worship, uh, we have Sunday school at 10 a.m. And we worship at 11 a.m. We have an evening service every Sunday of the month, except the first Sunday, because we have a fellowship meal that lasts for hours and hours uh, after our uh, first Sunday uh, of the month worship services. So that's that. And my email address is pwhines at gmail.com. If anyone ever wants to contact me, pwhines at gmail.com. And Onig, where can people reach us? They can email us at info at bttrmin.org. They can also email us at back to the reformation at gmail.com. They can listen to our podcast on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. We're on YouTube, but not all episodes soon to come. And, um, or just go to our website, bttrmin.org. Great. And you've been listening to another episode of Back to the Reformation podcast. We hope you join us again next time. See ya.